0: Hi I'm Mandy Jack and this is my colleague Karis Howells and we're part of a team of academic developers at Swansea University who provide support and promote good learning and teaching practices and experiences. Welcome to a pinch of salt Swansea University's learning and teaching podcast. If it has anything to do with learning teaching in higher education let's make sure everyone knows about it. Neuroscientist Professor Phil Newton is Associate Dean of Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Health and Life Sciences at Swansea University. Phil teaches neuroscience across a variety of programmes in the school and he also teaches on evidence-based education as part of the school's online MSc in Medical Education. Phil has also taught students and staff worldwide about plagiarism and other forms of academic misconduct. And Phil came to Swansea University in 2009 from the University of California, having completed his PhD in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the University of Leeds, and a BSc in Biology at Aberystwyth University. He holds an MSc in Medical Education from Cardiff University and he's famously known for his opinions around evidence-based education and advocates he wants to apply scientific methods to the study of issues in education. Phil describes himself as a pragmatic nerd. There are so many themes we could unpick with Phil, but for today, we will concentrate on how we learn. Hopefully he will join us in the future to address some, some other hot topics. So welcome, Phil.
1: Hello, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm, am I famously known for my views? That makes me sound like I'm a pain in the backside. I suppose probably lots of people would probably agree that I am. But people are nodding around the screen. All right, I, I'll pipe down.
0: Far from it. Far from it. You're a very knowledgeable person, and, Thank you. and and it's it's great to hear someone with with such a passion for for learning and teaching. So how did how did you develop your passion for learning and teaching?
1: Um, I've always been really interested in teaching, and. it's something I've always wanted to do when I was working in the University of California um, it was in a research institute we didn't have any students apart from the odd PhD students so we didn't have much opportunity to teach and I sought out opportunities at local colleges and um, other universities to do a bit of teaching in part just to see if the reality was matched by my expectation and I really enjoyed it so um when I came to Swansea it was in part to be part of a a team of people who were setting up the new medical school and I did it because I wanted to be much more involved in learning and teaching and I have to say you introducing me as a neuroscientist is not something that's happened to me for a little while because I haven't done a whole lot of um, what we might call proper neuroscience for a while but I do teach neuroscience a lot and it's it's there's a lot of overlap between the two I think because a lot of what I studied as a neuroscientist was about how and why learning happens and when I came to, to a more formal teaching role um, I it struck me that there was a lot that those two fields could learn from each other and a lot of the basic science, biology of how and why we learn really had something to offer the field of teaching which is how I've ended up in the position I'm in I think.
2: So just to quickly start then with um, a really difficult question I guess quite a big question um, how exactly do we learn because you've sort of published a lot on kind of thought of as, as positive teaching and methods and maybe what kind of hasn't got the best scientific underpinning for so um you know it's a huge question but if you can kind of give we're doing when we're learning and how exactly do students learn best
1: so that that is a big question Mm -hmm. i think one of the things i've been very keen to try and do is get some very key messages about learning into the hands and heads of as many people as possible teachers and students because there are you know, there, are, there are whole institutes and textbooks and journals dedicated to the study of learning. But there's one or two key principles that I think if every teacher had, uh, had a good understanding of them would be helpful for everyone. And really the simplest of those is that we have a really terrible capacity for processing new information in real time. And that contrasts with the amazing capacity that we have for uh, for want of a better phrase storing the things that we have learned so we've learned a huge amount over the course of our lives facts and knowledge but also our experiences emotional memories uh, our ability to ride a bike and play tennis badly and all those sorts of things and we have a huge capacity for storing that learning but in order to, for us to be able to have learned those things, we have to process new things in real time. And as I said before, we're terrible at that. And that that simple basic principle, I think, is something that when we start to apply it to learning and teaching can make a huge difference, particularly when we as academic experts are teaching students who are new to a subject because our limited capacity for processing information in real time the consequence of that is that when our capacity gets exceeded we we get what's called overloaded cognitively overloaded and we are just unable to process any new information and, and anyone has ever been in a lecture where after a few minutes they've thought I don't really know what's going on now will be familiar with the, the experience of not then being able to pick it up again later on because once you're lost you're lost and it's very difficult to pick it up so I think that's that's the single biggest message I'd like to get across. I, I, and I'm conscious of talking too much already, but I think the easiest way for me to demonstrate it, they're all shaking their heads, I'm not talking too much. The simplest way for me to demonstrate it is for us to do a little exercise. And then now they're looking a little more anxious where I, it's, it's not a test so much, it's called it a quiz. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read out a list of words And I'm going to ask you to listen to that list of words. And then I'm going to test you on the list of words. Not test you, quiz you. Can't say test. Okay? Does that sound okay? Sounds good. Now, so what I'll do is I'll read the list and then I'll read out some other words and I'll say, basically, was the word that I'm now reading out on the list that I read out previously? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And all our listeners can listen along, play along, wherever it is you're listening on the bus or on the... Bike or on the beach or wherever, and, and if you don't do very well, that's okay. And now they look even more nervous, right? <laughs> it's, it's absolutely fine, and this is the best way I found to make this this illustrate this point using the podcast format. Okay, so you ready for the list? You ready, listener listener at home or wherever you are, virtual nod. Okay, so the list is as follows. Don't write anything down, just listen. Smooth. Bumpy, road, tough, sandpaper, jagged, ready, coarse, uneven, riders, rugged, sand, boards, ground, and gravel. Okay, there's your list. So tell me, was the word whales on that list? Mm-hmm. No. no, 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 fairly confident shaking of heads. Okay, what's the word gravel on the list?
2: Yes, yeah, I think so.
1: Less confidence, two, two, yeah. three of us on the call. There's two, two firm yeses and one, you think so? Okay, yeah. What about the word course? Was that on the list?
0: Yeah, yes,
1: yes. Yeah. three. Okay, magic was that on the list? No, no, three firm no's, rough. Was
0: That
1: on the list, yes, mm-hmm. yes, two, two, yeses, three, yeses, yeah, it's, it's just shaking of the shoulders from our sound engineer, Stuart. <laughs> all right, the word rough was not on the list, okay. But even though we've only got a sample size of three here, this experiment that we replicated worked perfectly because you all said that it was, and that's exactly what we would expect. So We've done a lot in that little exercise. How many words were there, do you think, that I read out? Um, yeah, about
2: 10,
1: 15, something like that. 15. It was 15. So what we've done there is is illustrate a number of the points that I was talking about earlier on. So did you know what all of those words meant when I read them out? Mm-hmm. There were no... Alien words, they're all more or less everyday words. You could use them in a, in a sentence. You could think of synonyms for them. You could spell them. Um, you have a huge amount of knowledge about those words. And that knowledge is stored in your long-term memory. And your long-term memory, our long-term memory, is absolutely amazing. But when I'm asking you to try and hold on to the memory of that list, you're using a different type of memory, using working memory. And that's the type of memory that processes information in real time and that type of memory is absolutely hopeless and so even though we know what they all are it's not like they're complicated novel things we can't hold that information in our minds and that's something that we all struggle with and yet every time we're standing up in front of students or working with students in a practical or in a seminar And we're explaining something. It's normally far more complicated than the list that I've just read out. And yet we expect people to work with that information in real time. And it's very, very easy for them to become overloaded. That's the first principle. The second principle is illustrated by the fact that you all said the word rough was on the list, when it wasn't. Now, all of those words had a sort of common general meaning or theme. And it would be perfectly reasonable to say that the concept of rough was related to all of those words and so what you've actually done when I've asked you was this word or that word on the list you haven't been holding on to it in your head you're sort of trying to keep the list of words in your mind instead what you've done is you've reached into your memory and pulled out what you think was on the list you've pulled out what the psychologists would call a schema or a schemata a concept and understanding of the idea of rough And because all those words are related to rough, it's perfectly reasonable for you to have pulled that out. And that process is called retrieval. And if we give, if I am able to give people one piece of advice when teaching or students when studying is to do whatever you can to drive that process of retrieval, because there's a whole lot of really good evidence that shows if you can drive the process of retrieval, then learning is more effective. And the simplest way to drive retrieval is to take quizzes and tests, or to write quizzes and tests, not exams necessarily, but little practice pop quizzes, students writing themselves, us as teachers writing them into our teaching sessions, helps drive that process and makes learning more effective. That's was as short an answer as I could make to your question, Karis.
2: Thank
1: you. So in effect, you're proposing um, increasing the amount of assessment that we do, but in an informal scenario. That's a very good interpretation because it, it neatly tiptoes its way through a common misinterpretation of that principle, which is that we need more tests and more assessments and more exams. And in the literature, it is clear that if you do give students more assessment, it does actually drive their learning, but there are lots of consequences to that that we that are not necessarily just to do with the, with learning and the accumulation of knowledge. So informal formative practice, Quizzes and tests, yeah, is possibly the simplest way to do this. And as I said, to get students to write their own as part of an assessment perhaps is win-win for everybody.
0: Thank you for that. And my memory is is absolutely shocking.
1: It's Um, it's, all of our memories are shocking. It's absolutely fine.
0: Well, there are lots of teaching and learning methods and theories that have surfaced over the years, and many are well-documented, and they're widely used throughout education systems all over the world. Can you tell us about some of those... Maybe some that you like, some that you
1: don't like. Why don't we talk about some that work and don't work? I, and it's an important point, I think, actually, that being able to say that something works as a teacher is not as not quite the same and occasionally and often not as straightforward as being able to say that, for example, a medicine works to do the thing that it does, and that's the paradigm that it's often compared to. And so you do end up with a lot of approaches to teaching which we don't have great evidence for one way or the other, in part because it's difficult to generate. And then it means it does become a matter of personal preference. You asked me a a bit about how I got into education. Um, The honest truth is that I also am a bit of a show off and like being on stage. And I've come to accept that part of my personality. But that means I like doing lectures. And I have to accept that they're not always the best way of helping our students learn but they may be better for things, something for me to do because I enjoy doing them, that probably students get more out of them because it's something that I'm enthusiastic about. So there is a lot of subjectivity, but there are some things that do demonstrably work and help. Um, so we talked about uh, giving people practice quizzes and tests that the uh, educational theorists will call that retrieval practice because it drives this process of retrieval. That's a really helpful thing to do. And then there's a whole set of theories that are based around accounting for this limitation that we have in working memory. So one theory is known as cognitive load theory. Unfortunately, it's quite an esoteric term, but it basically means pay attention to the amount of work that your working memory, that real-time processing is having to do. Try and make sure that it doesn't become overloaded. And try and make sure that any work that working memory is doing is focused on the things that you want your students to understand and to learn. So, things like giving them worked examples and scaffolded teaching materials, um, giving them concrete examples of abstract ideas, taking out anything that's extraneous or distracting. We did a project where we looked at PowerPoint slides that had decorative animations on them. So, little animations that played as the um, person was speaking and they demonstrably impair students ability to learn so even little things like that but as a summary cognitive load theory is something that I think has a good evidence base for it and is based upon this this issue of working memory in terms of the flip side to that there are lots of things there are a couple of things I think that are really prominent in education which we know don't work probably the most common example that the textbook example is learning styles this idea that we can be classified as for example visual learners or kinesthetic learners or auditory learners Um, it's based upon the idea that we have preferences for the way that we learn and a preference is a subjective statement Um, always that reliable but they're subjective and It's not really difficult to argue with those. If I prefer learning something in a kinesthetic way, then I prefer learning something in a kinesthetic way. It can't be right or wrong. Um, The way the theory falls down, though, is that it makes a prediction that if I, as a kinesthetic, am a kinesthetic learner, I should be taught using kinesthetic methods. So I should learn by picking things up and, and playing with them to try and make them work. Or if I'm a visual learner, I should learn through images. If I'm an auditory learner, I should learn only through podcasts. And that theory can be tested because it's quite specific and it has been tested a number of times and it doesn't work in part because most of the things that we we try and learn we try and help our students understand can't be broken down into a simple auditory or kinesthetic or visual channel they they're all multimodal and so when you try and apply this theory it it practically breaks down as well as conceptually yeah, we published a study not so long ago now, six, seven months ago, which showed that about 90% of people involved in education around the world think that it does work, in part because we're all told that it works in some of our teacher training. And so it's a very, very common misconception about an effective teaching method that I would urge everybody to to park and look at something, doing something different.
2: So is there a reason why people tend to keep hold of these methods and approaches to teaching that have got very little kind of proof or kind of reason behind them the reason why they continues
1: so that's that's a really interesting question it's not been for learning styles which is what i'm most familiar with it hasn't been studied in great detail um but where it has been studied we find all sorts of different reasons and we did a study one of the first studies i did on this 2017 i think it was which flushed some of these things out somewhat inadvertently. Um, We, lots and lots of studies have been done asking people whether or not they believe this is true. And so we were doing one of those really, but with academics in higher education, because it hadn't been studied very often. But uh, I was determined to try and make it useful because I'm a pragmatist and I want to try and make research useful to people. So what we did was we asked people whether they thought this was true. Then we proposed, we explained some of the, uh, evidence for it and we said look here is the evidence that shows that this doesn't work and then we said to them do you think this is actually harmful because lots of people think this might be harmful and they and all of our participants said yeah yeah it looks like it's really harmful and then we asked them okay so now that we've told you it doesn't work and you've agreed that it's harmful are you still going to use it and a third of them said yeah we are and then we had a free text section at the end where we said is there anything you want to tell us and they told us a lot in part because they were really unhappy with what we had done, and we piloted it and tried to do it as gently and constructively as we could, but it was clear that, this is my roundabout way of answering your question, Karis. People who do this sort of thing, someone who sits down and says, "I'm going to make four different versions of my teaching to account for different learning styles," is someone who really cares about teaching, because it's a lot of extra work to try and do it. And so, when some Burke neuroscientist from Swansea comes along and says, ah, "Mate, it's a load of rubbish," it hurts. It's it's undermining what you think you've been doing as good practice. It is particularly damaging and unhurtful to those people who perhaps are most invested in teaching. And so people's natural reaction is to say, I, it, "This no, I'm, I'm, I'm not on board with that. And there's a whole literature about trying to change people's views, very prevalent at the moment, obviously, because we're wrestling with a global pandemic where lots of people have very fixed views about what should and shouldn't be done. And lots of that plays into it as well. So we've been told for a, people who have been told for a long time that this works, somebody else come along and say it doesn't, it takes more than that to change people's views. And then I think it does have a certain intuitive appeal. Um, you know, the idea that I, I know for sure when, when my daughter's birthday, last birthday present arrived, which was a Nintendo Switch. I just unplugged it, unpacked it, plugged it in, and then just kept pressing buttons until it did what I wanted it to do. And she's the same. So we might be called kinesthetic learners, whereas I know uh, uh, other people who would have read the instruction manual from cover to cover before even turning it on. And they might be, I don't know, read-write learners instead. So there is an intuitive appeal. There are people for who've invested a lot in it, and so they don't necessarily want to give it up. And I think the final thing is that It perpetuates because it perpetuates. We all get told it, so we tell other people it, and then it, it just carries on. Oh, and then there's one final thing, actually, which we've looked at a couple of times now. If you go to the research databases and you put in the phrase learning styles, you will find that about nine in 10 papers are written on the basis that learning styles are a good thing to identify. Now, that might seem contradictory to me telling you that there's no evidence for them, but they're research papers where someone has done something like give a learning styles questionnaire to all their students. I don't know, maybe they're a pharmacist or something. They've given the students a VARC learning styles questionnaire, they find that 50% of pharmacists are kinesthetic learners, and then they make recommendations for the way the pharmacy should be taught on the basis of that. So they're not testing learning styles, they're doing research on it on the basis that it's a good thing. But what that means then is if somebody was to go and look for the research on learning styles, the overwhelming majority of that research would give them the impression that it was a good thing to do. And so I think that perpetuates it as well.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Because something that I... Really do believe in is that it's nice to have a variety. And you mentioned, oh, if you're creating four different things to do the same thing, that's a a lot of extra work. But there's not really any harm in that if you have the passion to do that or the time to do that. And then your learners have the choice to select however the mood takes them because our moods do change, don't they?
1: They do. And that's another really good point. And it came out actually in the qualitative section of that study I talked about earlier. When we told people learning styles doesn't work, an interpretation that some people made of that was that then we should treat everybody exactly the same. And some people further interpreted it as everybody should be given lectures. And that's, that's not what the evidence is saying. And I think you're absolutely right. Having an, a, a variety of approaches is helpful. And there is some good evidence to show that presenting things in a multimodal way just gives people multiple perspectives on something. And if there's one perspective that works better for them than another, it might not be fixed rigidly to one of these styles. It may just be that if you look at something in a slightly different way, it's easier to grasp the underlying concept. Then there's there's an additional good theory from cognitive psychology that they call dual coding, which suggests, and I am going to oversimplify this, so I, and I know the neuroscientists and the psychologists will be cross with me, but we're going to try to make it useful for everybody. This idea of dual coding suggests that when we learn something, we very simplistically encode it in two different ways, either as a, in a verbal form, so as text or as language, or in a, a visual form, so as, as a pictures, basically. And there's some good evidence to show that if you learn something using both those modalities, then you learn it more effectively than if you learn using only one. And if you were to choose only one, it turns out that pictures are better than than words. And so you can apply that, you can translate that into something useful for students and for teachers by saying, look, if you I don't know, you're teaching somebody the surface structures of the brain, you might show them a picture of that and teach them using a picture, but then ask them to write a text description of what it is they've learned. That will help with this dual coding and then gives people multiple perspectives on the same thing, which I think, Mandy, is exactly what you're talking about and is actually a good evidence-based way of approaching it. It's just different to, to the approach that's advocated for by learning styles theory.
0: Yeah, because I, I possibly didn't get it when I first looked at learning styles. I didn't think that
1: was would fit me
0: because I knew I had moods where I, I had different ideas about learning. So I took my own... I didn't look at the evidence base when I first started uh, um, teaching in higher education. And I, and I just took my own um, sort of twist on that. And that, that's what I sort of came up with. And, and it wasn't until later when I thought I'd better start reading about evidence. You know, <laughs> why? Why I'm using these things? That's when I understood a little bit more deeply about that.
1: I, and, I, to, you know, I, I have no shame in saying I was exactly the same. I When I did my master's in medical education and I had to apply for it, I passionately advocated for the use of different learning styles as a way of making learning more effective. And in part, just because that's what I'd been told. And it wasn't, again, like you, until I started looking at the evidence, I thought, well, hold on a minute. And it, it does – I know I've answered Karis' question maybe about six times now, but there is yet another reason why – these sorts of theory persists is because everybody loves taking a little checklist questionnaire quiz thing you know that's why buzzfeed is so popular and take a quiz to find out what type of donut you are or which simpsons character you are it's really something people like doing you take a little quiz and it tells you something about yourself or at least you think it does and so being able to think okay well i am this sort of learner then and that helps me understand who i am and how i am is a very appealing thing to do
2: Um, On the issue of evidence-based learning, um, we know that recently you've been looking at pragmatic evidence-based learning and I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about what exactly is pragmatic evidence-based
1: learning? So pragmatism is pragmatically many different things. It's A philosophy was popularized um, really by a chap called William James, who many people think of as the father of psychology and and many other things besides, and then developed uh, over the, the intervening 110 odd years by a number of different philosophers. It's also a research paradigm and an approach to life that I think is useful when trying to think about how to get the best out of the vast body of research that is out there on how to help people learn how to teach and so on. I think the simplest way of summarizing what pragmatism is all about is that word useful and it's often set against other philosophies and research paradigms which prioritize other aspects above practical utility and anyone who's done uh, a sort of postgraduate qualification in education or an undergraduate degree in education or other research methods qualifications will often have been taught about things like positivism and interpretivism and um, critical realism these are research paradigms that are aimed at understanding what it means to say that we know something or we know something is true and how we define what truth and knowledge are and those are interesting and occasionally important academic questions, but I don't think they are as important as doing research that's useful for people, that helps students learn, helps teachers teach. And so when I when I did my masters, I was uh, instructed that I had to define my epistemological position for my research methods module and um, as i alluded to earlier being someone who can occasionally be a bit of a pain in the bum i protested against this quite vociferously and was told no there's marks attached to it you have to say whether you're a positivist or a realist or an interpretivist or whatever it may be and i i in the end decided i was going to sacrifice those marks and wrote a passionate defense of doing research that was useful no matter what the epistemological position may be and the person who then marked that research to whom i am forever grateful um very neatly pigeonholed me at the same time uh, in response to my desire not to be pigeonholed by congratulating me on my choice of pragmatism as a research paradigm. And I'd never heard of it that used that way before. And as a result of that, I went on to read about it. And that's how I ended up um, uh, doing the work that we've done on it. And the way that we end up applying it, I guess, is to say when you're trying to make a decision about doing something as a teacher or as a policymaker in education or as a student even, please do go and have a look at what the evidence has to say. But when we're looking at the evidence, there's lots of approaches to evidence-based practice and other fields that prioritize the best evidence for practice. And I guess what we're saying with our approach, our pragmatic approach is that while the best evidence is always a good thing to look for, it's possibly better still to look for the most useful evidence. And there is occasionally a distinction between those. When we're talking about the best evidence in, in the clinic, for example, we're talking about systematic reviews of randomised controlled trials. And the reason they are good is because those methodologies eliminate the risk of bias. And so the findings should be as generalizable as possible to as many other settings as possible. In education, that's often hard to do. And you may find a more useful answer more quickly by looking for evidence that is more um, aligned to the context that you yourself are working in. So the example we use in a paper we just wrote recently was if you were um, looking to give, trying to improve the feedback that you gave to students on a health professions course after they had done some bedside teaching and learning. Okay, so you, the people are on the wards, there are patients involved, the, the, the students interact with the patients, you then want to give them some feedback on how they've done. You want to look at the evidence for giving good feedback in that situation. There are lots of generalizable, systematic reviews of randomized control trials of what makes good and bad feedback, and you can learn lots of good things from them. But if there was an ethnographic study written by an educator in exactly that same context or a very similar one, you would learn something useful from that as well. And so that's really the heart of what we're saying is try and find the things that are useful to you in addition to the things that are designed to be generalizable across all contexts for all learners.
2: I guess that really helps as well if you're in a position where what you're reading and what your own experiences of teaching, where they conflict with each other, being able to use that judgment, I guess, it brings that back into sharp focus.
1: It is, and that's the—that's a really good point. That's the third element of this model that we propose in the paper you're referring to. Take the most useful evidence, consider it in light of the contextual details, the sorts of students you're helping, the, the, the physical facilities you've got available to you, how much they already have learned on this subject, and then use your judgment as an educator and your judgment about yourself, how familiar you are with this new thing that you might be wanting to do, and uh, how much well you know these students blend those three things together to make a decision about the application of research evidence to your practice. And then you're going to be in, in really good shape. And you know you can take it as far as um, saying, whenever you're tasked with doing something new, and I'll bet this applied to the three of you when, they, when you decided you're going to make a podcast, did you go and look at systematic reviews of randomized control trials of what makes a good podcast? Or did you go and ask somebody who'd made a podcast before, how did you do it? And there's nodding all around because that's, it is what we do and again that's a pragmatic acknowledgement of human behaviour and there's nothing wrong with that right i mean that's 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 a perfectly valid and valuable thing to have done and we learn a huge amount through those informal channels that are of course completely riddled with bias because one person will tell you something different to somebody else but it's useful so we do it
0: yeah, I mean, we just went through, um, why are we not hitting everybody in the university? Um, why are people saying, oh, we need to do that? And we go, well, actually, so-and-so's doing that. So we just thought, we're selling it in so many ways. Let's think of another way. <laughs> so it went back to... Yeah. Uh,
2: and I we- should have
1: said, when you introduced me as a pragmatic nerd, which was my own uh, choice of classification, I, th- I, that was, again, trying to illustrate this idea of being useful, because I am a nerd, you know, I, spend hours with a spreadsheet making graphs it, for therapeutic pleasure but I I've decided that I should channel that interest I have into something useful so if I'm going to spend hours with a spreadsheet try and make sure that the outcome of that is useful to as many people as possible and obviously spreadsheets are the sort of thing we generate from the sort of research that I'm doing so
0: that was good to me we could talk all day Phil but I think we've sort of reached the 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 um end of you know useful pragmatic um <laughs> yeah. questions we've got some fun questions though if you don't mind us asking and we're okay. calling
1: i will do my best I, I don't know if i can promise to be fun but i'll try
0: useful um for um our listeners so um anyway so shall i start harris with the first one so what's your favorite teaching resource or learning tool
1: Oh, gosh, my favourite. Am I only allowed to pick one? Favourites, favourites. Now that's a very loaded term, isn't it? I mean, I think it's fair to say the one that I use the most often, every time I teach almost, is PowerPoint. Am I going to say that PowerPoint is my favourite teaching tool? Probably not. I think it's underappreciated. There's a lot of there's a project we're doing over the summer to try and help people get the most out of the evidence base when designing their PowerPoints, because I think we've all sat through PowerPoints that are terribly designed. Um but I yeah, it's not going to be useful for me to, to say PowerPoint to people, is it? So I think if I can plug an additional one, we used a site last semester called Peerwise which my um, colleague Nigel Francis put me on to and I know there's a few people in the uh, university using it now. PiYs is basically a site for students to write their own multiple choice questions on whatever it is that they're learning. It's very, very easy to use. And so what the way that I did it with this uh, module that I wrote for this semester last semester was I asked students to go on to the site and write, I think 10 questions for their peers and every one of the students is enrolled on great because it's part of the assessment so they're all motivated to do it and they write 10 questions for their peers and they had to answer 20 questions written by their peers and then what you end up with at the end of that is hundreds of multiple choice questions written by students for students so they're all learning from each other the process of them writing their questions is driving this process of retrieval is really helpful for their learning and then when it comes to revision there's this huge bank of questions for them to revise from not all the questions were great some of them were fantastic but then they also rate each other's questions and there's a process of um, that process of natural rating then drives up the popularity of the questions that the majority of students find the most useful so that's my long-winded way of saying peer-wise as a shout out for anyone who wants to try and embed retrieval practice into what the students are doing and what you're doing, that's a really good way to do it. I'm not paid by PeerWise.
2: Thank you. Okay, your second question then is if you could invite anybody to be a guest lecturer, they could be living or dead, who would you invite?
1: Oh gosh, anybody to be a guest lecturer? Wow, now that's a question and a half, isn't it? Now, would I invite a neuroscientist? Would I invite William James, the pragmatist? Um, I think, actually, my, I've realized over time, especially over lockdown, that my most valuable source of CPD as a teacher and as a human being is podcasts. So I listen to them all the time. And obviously the people who are listening to this will be in a similar-ish position. And probably my favorite podcast, thinking about it, I want to say this carefully, my favorite podcast is one called Radio Lab, which is run by the American Public Media Service. And the host of that is a chap called Jad Abumrod. And the podcasts that they make are absolutely incredible. I learn something every time I listen to them on a whole variety of different subjects to the point where I've been mowing the lawn and just stood staring into space, open mouth at the things that they're telling me. And I would really like to get Jad uh, to explain and help us all understand how he tells these amazing stories that everyone can learn from in a way that is so compelling on subjects that are often very challenging and difficult. So there, Jad Apenbod, he's my my dream guest lecturer.
0: Wow, I like the sound of him. I've, I've written his name down. So I recommend um, him to anyone. <laughs> so, what's your preferred way to unwind or relax?
1: Um, so apart from walking the dog and listening to podcasts, I guess if I'm doing CPD that way, it's technically not unwinding, is it? Um, I do spend a lot of time uh, foraging, for one of a better phrase, fishing looking for anything that's sort of wild food to to eat and to share with other people, whether they like it or not. And that's probably the time when I'm not thinking about anything else. And you know, anything that's going on in academia or at work. If I'm out fishing or foraging, then I'm not thinking about that. So that's probably my favorite way to unwind. I'm not going to tell you where though, because then everybody else it's will be doing that. your
0: produce, yeah. <laughs> yeah
2: thanks okay and then looking back if you could go back and give some advice to your undergraduate self what advice would you give
1: um go get out of bed (laughs) um go to lectures uh I suppose I, I, I realize I'm probably going to say the same message for maybe the third time now but I tell myself to write some practice tests and flashcards and quizzes for myself and for my peers as a way of revising because I know what I did is I wrote out some notes and then I wrote them out again and then I underlined bits of them and I stuck some of them on the wall and I did that over and over again and some of the earliest research on retrieval practice surveyed students and said when you're studying for something what do you do and gave them a whole list of options and they all said oh we, re- we read our notes and we reread them or we look at the slides again and it that's not a terrible thing to do but it's far less effective than taking practice tests and, and writing some for you so that that's probably what I do yeah and also just to say look it's all going to work out don't worry
0: excellent thank you for that Stuart's got one more question for you Phil
1: okay so I've, been, I've been prodded into this. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek really, Phil. But the question is, Clan Ridge. Higher or lower. So what Stuart's doing is gently reminded me of the fact that I borrowed a book from him about 10 years ago, which I've never given back <laughs> to him. <laughs> <laughs> um, because what i do in the winter when there is no wild food to go and forage for is I, and I, I okay i'm not ashamed of this even though it's a bit odd I, I i have an interest in local industrial history so we go looking for old coal mines and then the remains of uh, of old industry and stuart gave me a book which was all about that region of north gower um i guess i'd have to choose lower because it's closer to the sea is that the right answer You yes, yeah. uh yeah 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 a lot of people would like to avoid pen clouds more than uh too, we so, won't uh, hear uh, anything uh, negative <laughs> about pen clouds if you if you're ever after some local produce some local food pen cloud has two fabulous establishments the chip shop there which does deep fried cockles cockles being a swansea specialty anything deep fried is better isn't it so they are magnificent <laughs> and then selwyn's the seafood processor, there as well now offers um they sell some of their produce there, and that's also fantastic. So, i so when, when, when you're on adverts for local companies, I think that the butcheries down there are pretty good. That's for true, and the butchers there are amazing as well. well. So, uh, you know, they got the donks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that message brought to you on behalf of the Payne Cloud Business and Tourist Board.
0: Thank you so much, Phil. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Uh...